I have to talk about the rest of the reasons why I left religion and why I left Christianity too. Americanized Christianity, a galaxy apart from Jesus. Authoritarian nationalism as an idol for white American evangelicals. This is medium.com written by Benjamin Kane. This was put out January 17th of this year. Eventually, American conservative evangelicals have to reckon with their zealous support of the Republican Party and of the Trump cult, both of which are antithetical to Jesus' teachings insofar as the latter are presented in the Gospels. These misled Christians will have to tell their grandchildren which side they were on when thousands of delusional insurrectionists stormed the Capitol. Until then, we should hold up their dopey sermons and casuistic rationalizations as evidence of an ongoing Orwellian conspiracy against reality and decency. See, for example, the writings of Tom Gilson, who is an American evangelical writer and strategist. One of his latest articles is a masterpiece of pa and cluelessness. An evangelical's obtuse sermon. Gilson despairs that American society seems headed for totalitarianism, not as a result of Trumpism, mind you, but solely because of democratic overreach, civil rights, cancel culture, and the like. He cites several of his articles in support of this worry, one of which focuses on the emerging conditions of American totalitarianism without so much as referring even in passing to the four years of Donald Trump's authoritarian quote-unquote presidency. Ironically, that latter cited article was published just two days before the Capitol Hill riot. In any case, despite the sinking church attendance in the U.S. and the rise of leftist radicalism and totalitarian censorship of Trump, in quotations, sarcastically speaking, and his supporters on Twitter, Facebook, and Parler, all isn't lost, says Gilson, since he's thankful he can look more towards Jesus in this time of need. I believe the American church may be heading for very hard times, he writes, and I'm completely convinced that God knows what he's doing and that he's more than adequate to carry us through. Thus, Gilson's subject is whether Christians will be true to Jesus as they opt out of the weakening church in a growing American secular culture. American Christianity says it's weak, divided, unsure of its theology, unaware of reasons for belief, and too content in American normalcy. The key question for Gilson then is whether you're quote-unquote prepared to say you'll follow Jesus no matter what. Gilson lays down some markers to indicate whether an American Christian is true to Jesus rather than to quote-unquote American normalcy. If they ask you to lie, whatever that lie might be, you will, will you follow Jesus no matter what? If they demand you make yourself an LGBT plus ally, will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus no matter what? If your friends cut you off your convictions, will you follow Jesus no matter what? And Gilson poses several key questions that Christians should be asking herself. Do I believe Christ alone has the words of eternal life? Do I believe he is God the Lord? Am I convinced of these things? If I say I believe, do I mean I actually consider it to be true? Or am I hedging it or am I hedging on it instead? If I, say I consider it to, if, if I say I consider it to be true, do I have good reasons? Evangelical audacity. Again, it's revealing that Gilson doesn't include the evangelical support for Trumpism as a sign that things have gone awry for American conservative Christianity. 
Roughly 80% of white evangelical Protestants picked candidate Trump over his rival in 2016 and 2020. The audacity of insisting that white evangelicals should be true to Jesus and should avoid godless American normalcy while overlooking their steadfast membership in the cult of Trump is matched only by Gilson Chetzpah in blaming Democrats and liberals not Donald Trump's four years of imperious demagoguery and his insurrectionist white supremacists for the rising conditions of American authoritarianism. Yet the two audacities are the piece with the greater con which is evangelical Christianity itself. To see this, consider the history of evangelicalism. This movement began as a revival of Christianity in Britain and the American colonies in the earliest 18th century in the face of the rational enlightenment. The revival was known as the First Great Awakening. Thus, evangelicalism began as a doubling down against the upshot of scientific knowledge and philosophical skepticism. The Christian movement used theoretical displays of the quote-unquote outpouring of the Holy Spirit to gain up enthusiasm for the ailing religion that, that had become formal and institutional, and the early evangelicals took advantage of the malaise brought on by philosophical doubts. Evangelicalism was a back-to-the-basics Protestant movement that drew from pietism, puritanism, and Calvinism. As a result, evangelicals emphasized salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus' sacrifice, the authority of the Bible, the born-again conversion, the born-again experience of conversion, a personal relationship with God, and the need to spread the Christian message. Now ask yourself what this fundamentalist Christianity has to do with Republican politics or with the American culture war. Why do so-called evangelicals in the U.S. care so much about abortion, creationism, the war on Christmas, and the alleged Christian basis of the American Constitution? Of course, a Christian can form opinions on these issues based on a reading of the Bible, but is any of them integral to the core minimalist Christian principles that are supposed to define evangelicalism? Evidently, since the 1980s, at least American evangelicalism hasn't been so fundamentalist after all since the movement hasn't focused on the Christian fundamentals. The white conservative quote-unquote born-again Protestants in the U.S. are committed to American Christendom, to the use of American superpower as a symbol of Christian greatness. Thus, their ardent defenders not just of basic Protestant conceits, but of authoritarian political values and of reactionary policies that couldn't even have been formulated in Jesus' day. Indeed, this Americanized quote Christianity could have nothing to do with Jesus. At best, the question is whether a Christian could be true from the New Testament to the documents that were Romanized, be Judaized, and Catholicized to suit the political conditions of the first few centuries of the church. As a few centuries of historical critical studies have shown, there's little, if any, historical Jesus in the New Testament. In any case, what's crucial to the established church isn't the gospel's portrayals of Jesus' Jewish teachings, but Paul's focus on the risen metaphysical Christ and on the Christian version of the dying and rising God mythine, which appealed to which appealed more to non-Jewish seekers. Thus, Pauline Christianity sold out Jesus from the very beginning. By the time we get to white American evangelicalism after 2,000 years of Christian union with earthly empires, the sellout is so appalling that it would make a fitting subject of a series of epic horror novels. What Gills would call authentic, strong, rational Christianity would follow 
not Jesus the son of the most egregious American cultural confusions that Gilson claims to be a skin. L- gay rights and political propaganda. I prefer to say LGBTQI plus rights. For example, Gilson posits that a true Christian would be an ally of homosexual LGBTQI plus people of the world, since presumably Gilson thinks Jesus wasn't one. Yet how could the late modern Christian novel the first century Jew would have thought about an LGBTQI plus movement when there wasn't an inkling of such a concept in that period? When there was no idea of the biological basis of sexuality or human rights as explicated by Enlightenment philosophers, of course, rough and rebellious Jews in first century Judea might have been sexist and contemptuous of forms of marriage not featured in their scriptures, but asking about rights for homosexuals and LGBTQI plus people, if you will, would be like asking a four-year-old about nuclear physics. And by the way, when he says her, meaning Christian, um, it's no different than our person using him to describe everybody. Uh, I prefer when they just say the person, you know, gender neutral pronouns, in this case, instead of her or him, so everybody can be belonged and, and included. Um, it's hard a coincidence that Gilson singles out this issue of gay rights, LGBTQ plus rights, if you will, as a test of Christian faith on the gospel because Jesus is much more emphatic in condemning wealth and materialism. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 30. On either issue, evangelical stance is decided not by an appeal to what Jesus allegedly said or did, but by the dictates of the plutocratic Republican Party, and by the authoritarian values of the American conservative tribe that's locked in a culture war with progressives and quote unquote socialists. In the 21st century, Christian evangelicalism is not like political propaganda than, a, than like a religious spiritual movement. Far from condemning the Gilded Age style of economic inequality that's been widening in the U.S. since the 1980s, evangelicals would be more inclined to side with the prosperity gospel of hucksters like Joel Osteen. Would that be staying true to Jesus and avoiding American normalcy? Obviously not. But consistency for these Christians is irrelevant here because evangelicalism is an application of the evolutionary handicap principle, the point being to saddle yourself with absurdity by way of demonstrating your loyalty to the cause. The more contradictions you can harmonize the way, the more you appear to compromise Christian principles by selling out to imperial and to social Darwinian interests while demonstrating your allegiance to the group with embarrassing displays of mockish emotion, the more you seem to bear the burden of taking up Jesus' cross. The operative test of Christian faith in conservative white America has nothing to do with being a follower of historical Jesus' teachings, rather. The test is whether you have the goal to pretend that an outpouring of nationalistic, social, and economic conservatism is essential to authentic Christianity. Pick your master or take Gilson's sighting of John chapter 6, verse 67 through 69, in which Peter reassures Jesus that he won't abandon him by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Gilson approves of how Peter called Jesus, quote unquote, Lord or quote unquote, Master. But although he perceives that the early Christians were only beginning to view Jesus as God incarnate, Gilson seems to take Peter's response as evidence of the later doctrine of the incarnation when Gilson says the Christians to ask themselves, Do I believe he is God the Lord? 
Just to be clear, the Greek for quote-unquote Lord in the New Testament is Kyrios, which isn't just a name for God, which can mean sir in quotation, or a human master in relation to servants. Thus, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 25-27, the disciples in the boat wake Jesus to save them from a violent storm, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Jesus obliges them. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. If by calling Jesus Lord, they were calling him God, the disciples would hardly have been amazed that he could perform such a miracle. Now they call him a man because that's all the curios need implied, a human master. Likewise, Luke chapter 20 verse 13 speaks of the master of the vineyard. And the same root word is used in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, which speaks of things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. Karyotetis. Lordships or rulers or authorities, so there can be evil lords too. The Christian lordship, though, is consistent with Jesus' warning that he came to bring not peace on earth, but division between family members. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, which is a likely based with Gilson's insistence that Christians should leave their non Christian family members to retain their good standing with God. And this lordship is also identical to the kind practice and culture to require their members to surrender all their worldly ties that violate the cult's commandments. The cult leader is the master, and the cult's father is a slave to that master. The gospels indeed suggest that Christians should be slaves to Jesus in something like that social sense. Mind you, Robert Eisenman, the biblical scholar and historian, explains that talk of lordship was a hangover from when the Jewish movement, I'm sorry, mind you, as Robert Eisenman, the biblical scholar and historian, explains that talk of lordship was a hangover from when the Jesus movement was a rebellious Jewish one before it got squashed by the Roman Empire and the Jewish-Roman wars and transformed itself into a Romanized post-Jesus Canelianonic religion that would go on to make friends with dozens of ungodly empires just as it did with the Roman one. The question then is whether white evangelical Christians serve Jesus or the mentally ill con spirit Donald Trump as well as the Republican Party, American nationalism, and their authoritarian and conservative impulses. Better indicator of whether a white evangelical is a slave to Jesus would be their renunciation of the Republican Party for being, over the last century at least, a bastion of militarism, plutocratic capitalism, white supremacy, and the Trumpian idol. Forgotten Gospel. What's wrong with American Christianity? We have said no thank you, God. I'll take it from here by Emma Cooper, medium.com. They are dark in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Think for a minute about your favorite film. Got it? Okay, good. Mull over the plot for a second. Why is that movie your favorite movie? Look at your heart racing. Why does that movie make you feel something? As a writer, I've noticed something weird about films, and this is how I try to sum it up. As humans, we have an extensive instinctive sense of who we're supposed to be. Films reflect a deeper truth. When it comes to human nature, there's unspoken standards. An ideal human behavior in our films and novels, we honor the ones who sacrifice, we honor the ones who pursue life. Take a look at The Lord of the Rings, Cinderella Man, Beauty and the Beast, Forest Company, really everything else in art. We celebrate primarily two, primarily two things, life and goodness. Think about, think again about your favorite movie. It's 
true, isn't it? The celebrated humanity, an aspect of humanity we seldom achieve. As though we're attempting to regain what we know we've lost, we worship and destroy the power of human goodness, the human thirst for greatness, and our cause, we know what we're capable of. We know what we are instead, so we hide in our stories, knowing that we have probably never die to save a life or achieve our deepest dreams. We will never be the humans we know we should be. What a strange concept is it is, isn't it? All other areas of human quote unquote purpose we accomplish. We eat, we sleep, most of us procreate. There's not a need or desire we can't easily achieve. Except this one, this higher destiny. Instinctively we know we're meant to be more than we are. The ideal self, this itch we can't scratch, then raises the question, what are we supposed to be and why can't we be it now? We long to be a certain kind of human. We long to be brave, we long to live vibrant lives, we long to be powerful, we long to be noble. It's as though some power has been stripped from our lives as though we are missing our battery pack. Church life. In my article, anything but Christian, why money is the church, I talk about what the modern church in America tends to look like. Congregations of bored, even miserable Christians gather every week. They do some ministry work. They go home and feed their kids. There's no excitement, no joy. Christianity for them hasn't changed their lives. They of this Barner group study for freedom in Christ ministry. More than five, more than four out of every five agreed that the Christian life is well described as trying hard to do what God commands. Two thirds of churchgoers said, rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. Two out of every five churchgoers in America feel that they do not measure up to God's standards. One quarter meant that they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than joy and gratitude. Guilt and obligation, yes, it could feel like pushing the entire weight of your failures up the hill for the rest of your life. You're trying to be better. You're trying until you're dizzy and sick. It goes something like this. I want to obey God. This is my task after all. Now listen, to live like Jesus. Jesus told me to love my enemies. And so shocked, hurt, and offended, I step up to the person who just hurt me and stammer a kind word. I met with I, I met with a hostile snub. I stumbled back more hurt than ever and even more confused. Jesus told me to love my enemies. Jesus told me to love my enemies. I'm doing what he said. I'm loving them. The words are coming out of my mouth. I'm loving them. Jesus said to love my enemies. I'm throwing myself under the chopping block with their disdain all in his name. I said the words. I did something kind. I love my enemies. I'm confused. My confusion doesn't come from their supercilious response. Now my confusion comes from my own heart. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I look at my enemy and I want to punch them in the face. I feel nothing for them, at least nothing beautiful. My emotions are being grounded into something false. I'm trying until I sweat to make my emotions something that they're not. I'm trying to feel a feeling I don't have. I feel like I'm chewing sand. I'm faking, faking, faking. Every time I obey God, I feel worse about myself. I resent God more. I'm quote unquote loving my enemies, but I hate everyone, including God, because of it. The problem. To the 80% of Christians who are, quote-unquote, trying hard to do what God commands, life ought to feel like the above example. As C.S. Lewis said about writing, the screw tape letters, it's all dust, grit, thirst, and inch. This is not the life the early church leaders seem to live. This is not the life we dream of when we get teary-eyed over Braveheart. If the early church leaders had something more real than this, what then is our problem? I believe we've lost the gospel. I believe Christians are living the way they were never meant to live. I want to thank Charles W. Price in his book, Alive in Christ, in which much of this article is based. He takes an entire book to explain what I'm trying to express in a single post. 
We're missing the point of grace. Expressed it so perfectly here. He did not let God bring you out that you might bring yourselves in. Here, Christ is speaking is speaking of the promised land, but also the bigger picture of salvation. God got us out of failure, out of being ick, self-centered, bum humans. Oh, she didn't say bum humans, you know. There's actually being sensitive to um, people in economic uh, economic injustice. So I would have said uh, self-centered, shysty humans who can never measure up to our ideal self, the promised land, the place he intends to bring us to that ideal self. But you did not let God bring you out of sin so that you might bring yourself into his character. As a church, we've almost exclusively come to believe this, that we are somehow responsible for bringing ourselves into the character of Christ, that the power to become like Jesus, the ideal human, is somehow in our own frail flesh. We were made to be godly. We were made to be more brilliant than the noonday sun, but the entire point of the gospel is that we cannot do it. We can. If we could, we may as well be any religion. We can even be agnostic or atheist. Christianity offers something unique in that God creates the ideal self for us. He literally includes our person with us and makes us radiant. I have a crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life and I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me, gave himself for me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 20. By the way, I'm not proselytizing, I'm just explaining what believers think about um, faith for sure. So sometimes I read the viewpoints of people who believe to be fair. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with himself, Church chapter 6, verse 34, and he sees, I pray that I have glorious riches and may strengthen your powers of the Spirit and your inner being, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still, Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so you can live your lives in Him, Go Austin chapter 2, verse 6. As kids in Sunday school, we were told that Jesus had come to live in our hearts. I remember this in the context of keep your heart swept out and watch for cobwebs. There's a Jesus living in you now. And I recall being told that God was going to live my life with me. Maybe I missed that part. The glorious truth we've almost forgotten He lives our lives, He lives our lives with us. Not passively reading the newspaper in our left eardrum, it's become a source of power and unlimited well of divine love. He is in us, he will clothe us in himself, he will fight for us, we will live our lives with him. Consider this description, this is what a follower of Christ looks like, and these signs will accompany those who believe. My name will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and they drink deadly poison will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well, Mark chapter 16, verse 17 through 18. Secretly, do you hate these verses? Do you hate these verses because you're not picking up snakes? You know that God is not in you like this. Why the disconnect? Why can't we heal the sick, drink deadly poison? I think there's an issue with scripture, there's an issue with us. We have forgotten the gospel, we have lost the return to something else. It's the problem with American Christianity. We have no thank you, God, because it's unfair. We are a country of Christians trying to be like Jesus in our own power. No wonder we're known as hypocrites. No wonder we're battered, born in fright, tears. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory to our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. In the true authentic Christian life, Jesus lives out our lives for us. In, true, in a true Christian, our love is so deep, the joy is so vibrant, the peace is so deep that there's no explanation for God. 
I love to be fair to people that I'm speaking about. So I put that perspective because that's how what a lot of people are suffering from the church and other articles. Um, I really appreciate because we've turned Jesus into a cult leader. Therefore, a lot of believers are turning themselves into cult followers. So Jesus is not their servant leader. He's their cult leader. Therefore, Jesus has more cult followers than servant followers. Christian colonialism, Christian colonialism then and now kills people on our planet. Christian missionaries throughout the United States work vigorously to convert. This is the Good Men Project, August 23rd of this year, by Warren Blumenfield. Outside the Bible Church in Wilson County, Tennessee, the pastor posted a large white sign stuck on the lawn with bold black letters announcing this is a mask-free capital adult letters church campus. <laughs> Kindly remove them or stay in your car. We celebrate faith over fear in capital letters, bold letters. On its website, we'd like to welcome you to our church. We accept everyone just as they are. We love you too much to let you stay that way. Come and grow with us as we seek God to want to show his love. Pastor Greg and Tasha. Pastor Greg and Tasha. 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 Okay. In response, Pastor Greg and Tasha. By your non-mask, possibly non-vaccine policy in parentheses, they come to you living, but you love them too much to let them stay that way alive. You are complicit in genocide. Shame on you, Warren Blumenfield. I certainly felt no surprise by the statement that they were not going to let people quote-unquote stay that way since the entire history of the Christian church is based on changing people to be like, act like, they believe like, and live like its concept of reality. The only and the one and only possible reality, this has been the very basis of religious colonialism, particularly Christian colonialism on each of the populated continents. Christian colonialism. The, ver the verb to colonize can be described as the process of appropriating a place or domain to establish political and economic control. Throughout history, nations have invaded not only their neighbors' lands, but also territories clear across the globe for their own needs. During the practice, the dominant nation attempts to colonize not only indigenous peoples' domains, territorial imperialism, but also their minds, their customs, their language, in fact, their very way of life. In countries with a historical legacy of, col of colonization, and even those without this history, members of dominant groups have accumulated unearned privileges not accorded to others. So the official terms colonization, colonizer, and colonized may have changed somewhat. Nowhere in the world have we experienced a truly post-colonial society. Materialism remains, though at times, possibly in less physical form. In, 15, in, in 1455, Pope Nicholas called his Christian followers to, to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans, take their possessions, and reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. This edict, known as the Doctrine of Discovery, gives license to the genocide of Black, Brown, and non Christians across the world. It was a stimulus for Columbus's travels, and it's based on Christian white supremacy. Beginning the first day Europeans stepped foot on what has come to be known as the Americas. Up until this very day, decisions over who can enter the United States and who can eventually gain citizenship status are generally dependent on issues of quote unquote race. 
U.S. immigration systems have reflected and have served as this country's official quote-unquote racial policies at any given point in time. Europeans on the North and South American continents established their domination based on a program of exploitation, violence, kidnapping, and genocide of native populations. For example, the Puritans left England to the Americas to practice a pure form of Protestant Christianity. They believed they were divinely chosen to form a biblical commonwealth with no separation between religion and government. They tolerated no other faith or interpretation of the divine precepts. In fact, they murdered and expelled Quakers, Catholics, and others. The American colonies followed European perceptions of race. The 1705 Virginia statute, the act concerning servants and slaves read, no Negroes, mulattoes, or Indians, Jew, Moor, Mahometan, Muslims, or other infidel, or such as are declared slaves by this act, shall notwithstanding purchase any Christian white servant. In 1790, the newly constituted United States Congress passed the Naturalization Act, which excluded all non-whites from citizenship, including Asians, enslaved Africans, and Native Americans, the later whom they defined in oxymoronic terms as domestic foreigners, even though they had inhabited this land for thousands of years. The Congress did not grant Native Americans right to citizenship until 1924 with the passage of the Indian Citizenship Act. Though Asians continued to be denied naturalized citizenship status, they employed scriptural justification to support the institution of slavery, for example. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 6. Slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. Later, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States, asserted, Slavery was established by a decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilization, and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. Many slaves in ships had on board a Christian minister to oversee and bless the passage. Slaves in ships included their names Jesus, Grace of God, Angel, Liberty, and Justice. The U.S. Supreme Court in Dred Scott v. Sanford, 1857, decided the case on U.S. slavery and constitutional law. It judged that a Negro whose ancestors were imported into the U.S. and sold as slaves, whether enslaved or free, cannot be an American citizen and therefore cannot sue in federal court. The federal government had no power to regulate slaves in federal territories acquired after the creation of the United States. Dred Scott, an enslaved man of the quote-unquote the Negro African race, had been taken by a slave master to free states and territories. He tried to sue for his freedom. In a 72 decision written by Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, the Supreme Court denied Scott's request and Scott remained enslaved. Central to the European American conquest of territory was the concept of manifest destiny. Providence destined U.S. expansion from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from sea to shining sea by the so called Anglo Saxon lens. White folks, if you will. This justified in the mind of the European the theft of indigenous people's territories in a war with Mexico. In 1875, Congress passed the Page Law, which specifically reduced immigration of women from Asia. The editor of the, a newspaper in Boot, Mo, Montana, wrote in 1870, The Chinaman's life is not our life. His religion is not our religion. 
His habits, superstitions, and modes of life were discussing his parasite floating across the Pacific and then penetrating to the interior into the interior towns and cities there to settle down for a brief space and absorb the substance of those with whom he comes into competition. His one object is to make all the money and return again to his native land, dead or alive. Let him go hence. He belongs not in group. To civilize native peoples and make them productive members of Christian European American society between 1879 and 1905, white Christian teachers operated 25 Indian boarding schools for the U.S. government throughout the U.S. This system was organized by Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt, who founded and personally supervised the Carlisle uh, Indian School in Pennsylvania. As Pratt related to a Baptist audience regarding his, his, his theory of education, we must immerse Indians in our civilization and we get them under, hold them there until they are thoroughly soaked, and we must kill the Indian men to save the man. Pratt and the white teachers stripped Indian children of their cultures. They cut short nails as hair. They forced them to wear Western-style clothing to take a Western name. They prevented the students from conversing in their native languages. The English was compulsory. And they confiscated and destroyed all their cultural and spiritual symbols. And they imposed them and mandated the learning and adoption of Christianity. Europeans, when they invaded the North and South American continents in Africa, missionaries attempted to impose primarily Christian orthodoxy. Joel brings in his book, Deculturalization and the Struggle for Equality, discusses cultural genocide defined as the attempt to destroy other cultures through forced acquiescence and assimilation to majority rule and Christian cultural and religious standards. This cultural genocide works as a process of deculturalization, which Spring describes as the educational process of destroying the people's culture and replacing it with a new culture. An example of cultural genocide and deculturalization could be seen in the case of Christian European American domination of the First Nation peoples whom European Americans viewed as uncivilized, godless heathens, barbarians, and devil worshippers. White Christian European Americans deculturalized indigenous peoples through many means confiscation of land, forced relocation, undermining of their languages and cultures and identities, forced conversion to Christianity, and the establishment of Christian day schools and off reservation boarding schools far away from their people, which combined constitute settler colonialism. Civilizing Indians became a euphemism for Christian conversion. Christian missionaries throughout the United States were vigorously convert. A mid-19th century missionary wrote, as tribes and nationals, the Indians must perish and live only as men and should fall in with Christian civilization that is destined to cover the earth. More ultimate questions need to be raised as the culture spins around. As individuals and nations since recorded history have attempted to explain the mysteries of life as spiritual and religious consciousness was developed and carried down through the ages as people have come to believe their way so that the right way, the only way which all others as simple pretenders which could never achieve the truth in capital letters, the certainty, the correct and right connection with the deity or deities and as individuals and entire nations rape, pillage, enslave, and sermon any quote-unquote others believing differently. In reality, all religious doctrines turn from uncertainty and conjecture, from multiple gods, hybrid gods, and humans, from Mount Olympus and before, to earthly deities in the heavens, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, to the burning bush, the covenant, and the parting of the Red Sea, to the Immaculate Conception and Resurrection, to Muhammad's rising to heaven, from the rock to the golden tablets, all beginning with the human creations of God or gods. God or gods. Anyone can believe anything they wish, whether others find those beliefs laudable or offensive. When, however, the expression of these 
beliefs. Women expressing those beliefs denies other individuals or groups their full human and civil rights. A critical line has been crossed from their actions have entered the realm of oppression. Individuals in entire nations have the continue to believe that their reality fits all, that it is proper, right, support their belief on others, with God on our side. The major problem is that this belief kills cultures and people in our planetary environment. And another thing that happens to Native Americans by this person colonizing these, their germs and bacteria were other ways of wiping out Native Americans. That has to be included. So, I hate Christian colonialism. I hate religious colonialism. I hate religious imperialism. I hate Christian imperialism. Um, I hate Romanized Christianity. I hate Romanized religion. Um, I hate religious elitism. Um, I hate Christian elitism too. I hate religious privilege. I hate Christian privilege. I don't mind Christianity, but I hate American Christianity. The one that is about every way of life that is about uplifting wickedness and attacking goodness. So, Jesus is not the problem for American Christianity. So, uh, I'll explain part two in the very next episode. What I have to say is very long, but that's why I'm going to take a break and then go at it again. So, what I want to say is uh, very important. Even now, and I'm get I'm gonna give you all the reasons why I left Christianity and religion in very next episode. Sure. So thank you for hearing my heart. <laughs>